Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loblas and Gabe, and I am your host. I am here with Christiana Kimmick. Hello. Our producer and amazing lady. And we are here Uh, to talk about, we actually decided to dedicate an entire after the episode to Melissa's episode (gasps) because there's just so much to cover. It's such good stuff. We've gotten to know. Well, you've know, you knew Melissa before I did. Mm-hmm. You obviously had a long relationship yeah. with her. And well, I, I so I actually became friends with her after Pat passed because I knew Pat. Oh my gosh, that's um, right. I knew Pat. Pat and then dated a friend of mine. And then Serena, your best friend, mm-hmm. helped Pat. Serena was very close to Pat. Put him in treatment. Wow. Sponsored him very close to – Serena was very, very close. She had – when she and her now husband, Brian, got married, she had a little charm with her grandmother, one other person, and Pat on her bouquet when she walked down the aisle. They were – I mean, they were very close. Oh, my God. Um. So, yeah. Wow. So um, – and I just got to know Melissa as we were yeah. doing this – episode and then also working with her on producing that video for International yeah, that Overdose was so Awareness cool. Day. That was so cool. She did an amazing job. She I did. must say she was so for nervous For someone who at was first. so scared to do it, she's yes. just, I want to share. So she, she sent me some information and I want to share just a little bit about the things that came out of this podcast. So um, if anyone is not familiar. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, Melissa, episode 19. Melissa Bresnahan, episode 19, and a mother's perspective on losing a child to an overdose. Mm -hmm. I think that's the title. So she said uh, a couple things. So so I'm going to read something she wrote real quick here. Um, She said, as a result of our family experiences, after Pat passed, Caitlin decided Caitlin is um, one of Pat's sisters. I believe she's the younger one. Caitlin decided to change careers from an elementary school sign language interpreter to a career with San Luis Obispo's County Drug, Alcohol, and Behavioral Health Department. She specifically works with recovering mothers with young children. Caitlin has always had a strong affinity with children and is doing a great job, loves her work. And then... As a result, she. This is what Melissa said. As a result of me being willing to share my story for International Overdose Awareness Day, Megan, Pat's other sister, who works with Mind Body, a software company, encouraged her office to use this day as a focus for the August online employee newsletter. Other employees shared their stories, and Megan was filmed for an employee public service announcement about her experience losing her brother. It was very touching. It has not been publicly released. But if it is, we will have it. And the courage to change has had a ripple effect. So that was really cool to hear and to see all the comments on the video. Yes. Um, I think the video was really helpful for the podcast. I think it was too. And I think it, it just helped like give, give a, a rounder perspective. Yeah, like and 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 a, a visual of who was talking and mm-hmm. which I think it seems like people really liked. I know I liked it. Yeah. You know, if, oh, for if sure. I'm you know hearing someone, yeah. I like to be able to see who they are. Yes. And, and to see the pictures and I mean I, it was obviously seeing the pictures of Pat as, you know. <sighs> so I was putting that together, it was very late one night and <laughs> I'm going through, I've seen the, you know, I'd seen yeah, the, I just said, you know, Melissa, send whatever pictures, you know, you feel comfortable yeah. with sharing, which she's very open about it, which was so amazing. And I just had said, you know, I really want to put 
like the human aspect to it. Like yeah. there's so many times that people just go, oh, well, they were just an addict. Well, they were just the, and it's not, no, this was, this is a human. This is a son, a brother, you know, someone who is loved, yeah. you know, an uncle, Yeah. you know, and, and I just was like, you know, Melissa, let's like, let's really share who he, who he was and yeah. how special he was because yeah. he mattered. Right. Because we're sharing about his addiction. We need to share about who he was. Like that's a yeah. piece of, that was a piece of him, but that wasn't him. That wasn't all of him. Right. It was a struggle. Yeah. It's not him. It's not who he was nor who he is. I mean, I think it's a piece of who he, you know, I think it's a piece of who we are, that struggle, because it creates the resilience on the other end. Like it creates, but mm -hmm. it, it isn't a good depiction of what's under there. It's like, it's the affliction. It's not the, it's not the, um, the original core substance. Right. It's not, yeah, that, that's a really good way of putting it. That's a really good way of putting it because I feel like on my end, what I've heard out of society is, Again, you know, just they were just this. It doesn't matter. Right. They d I've even heard, you know, they deserved it because they should have stopped. And it just, you know, as I was putting together this slideshow and, you know, trying to feel like, okay, what pictures do I put at what moment? Yeah. What makes sense? You yeah. know, just kind of feeling it out and being sensitive to it. I, I just, I, I think I texted you. I was like, I just, I was bawling. Yeah. Because I felt, I felt a couple different things. I felt like this could have been you. And I'm so close to you, so I know you. I know your story. Yeah. And picturing somebody saying that, and then that being you. Yeah. What an impact you've had on my life, on other people's lives. You know, it's like I just was like, oh my gosh, no! It matters if you're here. It matters if you're here. You matter. Pat mattered. I didn't know him, but yeah. it all matters, and it made it so personal for me. Right. Connecting that part of the story with the people that you've met and yes, you know. yeah. and and thinking, okay, if you so going back to the day that you had overdosed yeah. that you shared about, yeah, you were seventeen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What wouldn't have happened? Well, who knows where Lion Rock would have been. Yeah. I mean, you were such a huge contributor to Lion Rock, right? Like your piece in it has been yeah. gigantic. You wouldn't be married to Dak. Jackson and Davis wouldn't be here. Uh, your boys. I mean, you. my life wouldn't be the same because of the impact that you've made on my life. We're going to start crying. It just, it, I want people to know that it matters, you know? Yeah. And it's like, for me, it took putting that video together and thinking of that person who matters to me. And I'm the I can only speak for myself, but I know you've had some such an impact in other people's lives. And I know Pat had an impact in other people's lives too. Yeah. And he mattered. And it's not, you know, people are not a throwaway because of what they struggle with. They're not trash. And and I also just thought how unfair it was that I was sitting here making a video. Not not unfair that I was making the video. It was unfair. It's unfair that someone lost their child. It's just yeah. Yeah. not fair. Yeah. It's not fair that I'm sitting here putting this video together because someone lost their child. It's just I was grieving. I was just and and I you know I was it my loss. Right. It's her loss right. and 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 her family's loss and but she did such a beautiful authentic you guys came together and created such a beautiful authentic artful way of portraying her who she who Melissa is, who her family is, who Pat was and what happened. So mm -hmm. the fact that you felt emotional around it is, you know, a testament to the authenticity of all of that sharing through the video, through mm -hmm. the conversations, the emails behind the scenes, yeah. like all of that, you know, that's a testament to like 
I think it's I think what it really comes down to is like if you ask questions and you get curious about who people are and what they've been through, you can connect to them. Mm-hmm. Like if you, you know, I always we always talk about how like I'll judge people and then I immediately like get to know them or talk to them and I'm like, I hate myself. Why did I judge them? You know, <laughs> like I'm such an ass. And and it's because it's like I I go a little bit deeper and it's all the same, you know, like it's, you know, we all bleed red. Like it just, it's like, okay, yeah, I get that. I've done that. (laughs) I'm kind of like that, you know, or like, or I'm not, but I get that or whatever it is. And, and, you know, Melissa has just done such an amazing thing. And she, you know, you touched on a couple things. So she, I have some information from her. Um, So, you know, Melissa, sorry to interrupt you. Melissa, is is just a very affluent <laughs> writer. Yeah. She expresses herself very yeah. well in the written word. And so at, we rec- we actually recorded this podcast in June, Melissa's podcast. We right? did? I think it was June or July. Because oh I remember I, I, know where I, I remember asking her and Who I said, I? I said, I really, you know, we can put this out. She sooner. did. It was June because she came down in June like 21st or something. Yes, because it was, she was right coming before down. I yeah. left for mm-hmm. right. my yeah, trip. Because yeah, yeah. I remember so I when she was coming. Yes, that's right. And we had <laughs> it on God. the books for yeah. like a month or two yeah. before that. So I asked her, I said, I know this is a lot of time, but International Overdose Awareness Day is August that's 31st right. and we wanted to do something with it and had some ideas around yeah. it. And so in this process from whenever Melissa recorded to working on the video for Overdose Awareness Day, we've received a lot of correspondence from her. Yes. And she's just, I she mean, just, just had thoughts. You know, we, so we sent Melissa the uncut version of, of the podcast and she had some ideas. She sent me and Christiana some emails and I wanted to, sh- I wanted to kind of go over some of the things she talked about. So one thing that she said and that you just brought up, she said, several times throughout the interview, Ashley asked me when I realized Pat was an addict or had problems. She says, I don't think I realized he had a problem until the time I tracked him down at the hotel. I thought the drinking was just partying. When I first heard he was using heroin, I thought he just got involved with drugs and now he needed help to detox, but it didn't have an addiction problem. I was so very naive or was maybe suffering from not my kid syndrome. And he was very good at hiding the addiction and he didn't live at home. Of course I know better now, but I really just didn't have a clue and any knowledge about addiction was just not part of my repertoire of information. I was part of the problem that still exists with stigma and judgment. Back then, to me, an addict lived on Skid Row in downtown LA and had all kinds of problems or drug addicts were part of gangs and certainly not were where and certainly we're not here where I live. I want people to know and understand what addiction is all about so they don't have to go through years of trauma to get their brain wrapped around this concept. Mm. I think that so, I mean, so Melissa, you know, was a teacher and then a principal and her husband was a police officer and a detective. And they had, you know, these three kids, they lived in this beautiful town and all of the things were within the normal range, right? You know, the of of like mm-hmm. growing up, right? In terms of you know, they were loved, they were homed, they were loved, they were housed, they were fed. You know, all all the things that someone you know one needs. And I hear this a lot from people. And and what's interesting to me is I didn't realize he had a problem until I tracked him down at the hotel. I thought he was partying. So she thinks he's partying. And then when she heard he's first using heroin, she thought, oh, I just, he needs help detoxing. 
and and then not my not my kid syndrome. So it's interesting about that. Um, so I think my family can relate a lot to that in the sense that early on. Uh, when I was experimenting with drugs and it was clear to my family that that, well, it was certainly clear to one of my parents that that was going on because we had conversations about it. Mm-hmm. Because I was doing well in school, because I played all sports, because I was involved in, you know, community service. And I, I mean, I, I was, you know, what you would put up as a poster child in terms of the school, the academic, all the like benchmarks that mm-hmm. parents want you to hit. Because of all that stuff, I still was able to maintain that stuff. The fact that I was experimenting young with drugs and alcohol and boys, I think was less, I think they were sort of like, okay, well, you know, keep your, keep your shit together. And I also like, and I know that even when I started doing cocaine, that was the case. It was like, okay, this isn't, we don't like this, but like, what are we going to say her whole life is put together? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think my mom felt that way, but my dad definitely did. And I think a lot of the time we want – there's a confusion between what is normal partying and what are the precursors to a serious problem. And I get that really deeply because <laughs> – so I get sober at 19 and my using obviously was crazy. I mean if you listen to the first episode of this podcast, you you hear mm-hmm. you know what my journey – was and and then my sisters they come up behind me right now they've been exposed to way more than kids their age have been exposed to mm-hmm. way more they've seen they've also seen the dark side of drugs and alcohol particularly my youngest sister she more was a my middle sister and I partied together and my youngest sister was much more of a a bystander she was watching what was going down mm-hmm. And I think that I remember watching them grow up like through high school and through college and watching them party and being worried and having and and trying to figure out, okay, they're partying. Is this normal? What's not normal? Like are party drugs okay if you're still doing well in school? I mean, my youngest sister went to Tulane in, in um, New Orleans and where, I mean – the drinking there is insane. And she was on Dean's. She did amazing. She did great. And she had, you know, a full life and, and she partied, but it wasn't, I don't know. I couldn't tell. I couldn't tell what was, you know, it looked like college. I couldn't tell. College also looks like binge drinking, right? Mm -hmm. So like, I don't know. And I remember talking to her about it being like, how do you, how do you do this? Like, how does this work? Like, how do you know which one of your friends is, you know, and we had long conversations and I just, I can understand that confusion because I remember having it. Now, on the flip side of that, what I do know is that when people are using heroin, that's a pretty good indicator that that's not a party drug. Mm. And, but I can also still understand, like, this can't be happening. If you don't know anything about addiction, then you're like, well, they just got mixed up in the wrong thing. They're physically addicted. Let's get them off. And then that's it. Mm -hmm. I just find it so... Interesting, though, that it's like that it took going to that hotel and even then, oh, we'll just detox him. Like even then the realization or seeing what she saw when she went to that hotel room and needing it to be so much. And I just I think that's the case for so many people. And this is with heroin. So 
what Melissa went through and she talks about how, you know, and I, I really appreciate that she owns, like I was part of the problem that still exists with stigma and judgment Mm -hmm. because I think that until we all, myself included, own that we have stigma and judgment around this topic, even those of us who are sober, I mean, sometimes I find my, like, oh, wow, I'm judging people for drinking and using, like, this is hysterical, yeah, you know, and I need to get back to that humility and and I either do it myself or life does it. But I think that it's important to really realize that the education component to solving this problem or, I mean, I don't know, solving, helping, whatever, is so important. And Melissa was struggling to recognize addiction when her son was using heroin. Imagine the difficulty for the parents whose child whose children are abusing marijuana and alcohol. Right. And I think I'm so glad that you brought that up because as I was reading that email and even just listening to you reread it, I, if I were in her shoes, that's what I would be thinking. <laughs> right. How do you know? I mean, partying and drinking and the whole right, college. Like what? It's, it's, it's I mean, normal. I, I will say, I will put, here's a public service announcement. Mm-hmm. If they're using heavy doses of opiates, if they're using heroin, it's not partying. Done. That's that, that, that. There are a lot of lines you can cross. You can get addicted to. I've seen people incredibly addicted to marijuana, incredibly addicted to alcohol, mm-hmm. cocaine, all those other things. But it is safe to say that if your child or loved one is using heroin, that they have crossed that line. I just want to put that out there. That's and that's a good indicator. Because <laughs> it's a really good indicator. Here's that's the thing. not a party drug, right? And even with me, like I've worked with, you know, I. I teach dance. I don't work with adolescents as much as I do anymore as I used to, but you know, we'd, we were always kind of trained to look out for things, you know, in dance class, bruises, you know, whatever, anything that's off, like just trained to kind of report it if we see anything, you know, off. And, and I always thought when I was working with some of the older kids, you know, what, what do I, what am I looking for? Yeah. What am I looking for? Well, because grumpy and all those things can be mental health. They can be depression. They can be, uh, I don't know, being a teenager. Or just being overworked. Yeah. People are just, people are just stressed nowadays. There's so much, there's so much stimulation, you know, so it is, where do you draw the line? Right. And and maybe they drink and that's like part of their high school experience and they're hungover. Does that mean they're an alcoholic? I don't know. I mean, these are definitely really difficult questions. I can say that if your child is experimenting with opiates, do not let that go. Mm -hmm. And particularly in this day and age, in this day and age, you know, I think when I was a kid, oh God, I just said that, using opiates, you know, I mean, there was a high risk of overdose for sure, definitely compared to other drugs, but my God, it is it is so incredibly dangerous. I mean, just the level of, with fentanyl, with uh, car fentanyl, it is so terrifying. It yeah. is, I just, I always say this, but like raising two kids with two drug addict, alcoholic recovering parents and having my little boys like in this and knowing what's going on out there mm-hmm. scares me to death. Yeah. It scares me to death because it is one of those things where there are a lot of kids who are just literally trying at one time and they're dying. Oh my God. Like they, they aren't in that classification where oh it's like their God. friend gives them a Xanax and it's, you know, they, and which isn't an opiate and, right. and, and it's laced with something. There was laced with something. Yeah. That's yeah, what like, I'm seeing now. Yeah. So there's so much of that. It's so, so, so scary. And so I, I, my personal rule is like, 
opiates, that's it. Like you're going some like you're doing op- you're experimenting with opiates. We're done having a conversation. That's kind of how I right. like again, I'm not saying that the other things aren't scary whatever, but that is for me that's a hard line. That's a yeah. hard that's a hard no because it's ju- you 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 there's no wiggle room. None. Yeah. And too many people are dying. <laughs> people who aren't addicts are dying. Yeah. People who were just experimenting are dying. Like that that's the part, you know, that's the thing is you don't know what you're getting now. Right. That's right. probably the worst part. Yeah. Is is you just you, yeah. you have no clue. I, I read an, a Facebook article and it was about a kid here actually in Orange County where we're located and they called him the Oxy God because he provided just an asinine amount of Oxycontin to, you know, kids, college kids, whatever else. Well, to save money, he and his dude, his buddy, started lacing it with fentanyl and he's killing people now with it. So he's in jail. He's done. Yeah, he's in jail, but the cartels are lacing it with fentanyl too. So whatever's coming over. It's just, it's not, it's not even ballpark anymore. It's It's not not. even ballpark. So I think that's a, you know, like a hard line in the sand. Mm -hmm. But, you know, again, imagine the parent. So she's struggling, not my kid syndrome. The drug addict, the alcoholic is on skid row, like all these things. Mm -hmm. And for her, it takes heroin to realize that there's a problem. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think about the families who don't have this education, again, whose kids are like smoking a ton of weed and drinking a lot. And they're like, well, is this partying? Is my kid a stoner? Is like what constitutes a real problem? Yeah. And and what I would say is some of it's gut. (laughs) Some of it is like your gut feeling. Um, Some of it is asking people who are informed about the topic. You know, that and that requires being willing to talk about it. Yeah. So that requires a, you know, dropping the shame and the stigma and the judgment long enough for you to have a conversation and say, this is what my kid's doing. What do you think about that Mm -hmm. with someone who knows about this topic? Yeah. Seek expert advice. This is something I was I, I was taught early on in sobriety, which is if there's something you don't know something about, seek expert advice. Mm-hmm. Don't make it up. Don't pretend. You know, I mean, sometimes there, you, you you do the best you can a ton with parents. <laughs> there's a lot of making it up. I can only but like imagine. seek expert yeah. advice. There's nothing, no shame in doing that. And so I think that's a really valuable thing. I, 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 I want to read a little bit more of what she sent me and then talk about this if that's good for you. Yeah. Okay, she said, Melissa says, when I listened to the podcast and Ashley was asking about how I found out about Pat's passing and how I felt, I thought I sounded flat and empty, not much emotion, which is exactly how I felt at the time, which was very different from how I would imagine if I was being informed about a family member passing. When Pat was in the depth of his addiction and until he was close to a year sober, I often thought that heroin was going to kill him. I thought about this often. I imagined what that would be like. I thought about losing Pat all the time. Maybe this is a way that a parent prepares for the event actually happening. After he reached a year of sobriety, I really don't remember these thoughts happening at all. When he relapsed, I was shocked. I don't think I realized the severity of his relapse until after he passed. He got into rehab right away, had a great experience. I thought he was back on track. When he passed, it was just not something I expected, and I think it took me a long time to accept the news and really believe that it happened. Maybe my brain just shut down, and it only allowed me to deal with his death in small increments as I was more emotionally ready to handle it. 
And then she talks about having trouble with her memory, forgetting what she was going to say mid-thought. She talks about um, waking up every day in a nightmare. She says that she wants other parents to know that the grieving process is not what one might expect. And my response of being calm and not so emotional did not mean that, quote, Melissa is handling this really well. I was not, I am not, and I may never handle this well. Grief is related to love. As long as I love Pat, I will grieve for Pat. Love is a good thing. Therefore, my grief is an expression of my love. Mm. Yeah, I think, you know, there's no, and that was part of why why I asked about that, uh, because I think we have ideas about the phone, whatever phone call it is for us, you know, for me, like what it, what it would be like if I got the phone call about my parents or what it would be like getting the phone call you know, with my kids or what, you know, whatever the situation is that, that kind of stokes that fear for you. I think we all think about that and we, Mm -hmm. we have an idea of how we might react. And death is definitely one of those things that is really hard for the, in my experience, for the brain to wrap itself around. Mm -hmm. Really hard to know how to respond to, you know, and I think, I think she's right. Like it's, it's, it happens in emo- in increments and and i i think all difficult emotional things if you're willing to feel them are going to happen in increments i think that's a really normal way in every painful emotional event that i have had i have experienced it in increments and been worked through it in increments because i just was not able to handle it all at once and i think that's a really normal mm-hmm. way to handle yeah. loss I love what she said about grief because yeah. it was, oh yeah, oh gosh, whenever I experienced a big loss, it was, I, I felt like, you know, overcome, like, you know, you get those waves, oh, right? Yes. And it's just like, yeah. sometimes it feels like they just don't stop coming. Yeah. Like you're just getting just yep. pounded by, you yep. know, like you're, you're just, yep. you know, if you've ever Wave. been, yep. yeah, if you've ever been stuck in that oh. kind of washing machine effect yes. of like, you got pulled into the surf yeah. and the riptides pulling yeah. you and oh yeah you, know, you just like, I've, I've almost get, drowned from that yeah. before. So yeah. I'm like, I, yeah, oh, this is, this is how it. this feels. Yeah, like I hate it. I feel like I'm drowning, but I, I love, someone told me that actually about the grief is actually, and it's out of, it's out of your love. It's, it's right. an expression because you're not able to express your love the same anymore. Right. Cause this person isn't here, Yeah. but that grief can be the beautiful thing about it is that it, it is, it's, it's the love coming out. Right. It doesn't make it easier, but understanding no, and it never goes away ever. It never goes away. And, um, I literally cannot fathom losing a child like no like I can't in fact I don't plan to fathom it so I know that that's like a whole experience in and of itself and and I think that for mothers parents siblings that lose someone close to them to seek other people who've had the same experience is a really healing thing Mm -hmm. Um, I really you know I've talked to Melissa a lot about that and I think that's something that um, she's done a bit and it's very, very helpful to yeah. seek people who've had that ex- same experience because until you have, it's really hard to know what to say or how to be or, you know, to understand those really deep experiences. Right. But she, this, this struck me. So Melissa said that I would like other parents to know more about how to support an adult child or any addict who is in recovery. The first year, we were very involved. Parent meetings, phone calls with blueprints for recovery, Al-Anon, counseling, lots of talking, and listening to Pat. 
Then he maintained his sobriety and experienced success and long-term sobriety. I don't remember doing much. Of course, we supported him and had many great visits, but what more could I have done? What has helped Ashley with her long-term recovery? What have her parents and family done to help her? How has she handled difficult times? I remember Pat saying he wasn't going to meetings anymore, didn't have a sponsor. I guess I thought this was okay. I don't think I realized how much ongoing support and working a program was a necessary component for continuing and maintaining sobriety. Yeah. So this is a big topic because it was interesting, I think, and I shared this in another episode. When I first, so for years, I've we've had family, friends, people who um, knew me growing up who would say, you know, congratulations on X amount of years sober. They're so proud of you. This is so amazing. And um, and then when my story came out and they listened to it and they heard about like what what I have had to do to stay sober, like the amount of work that goes into long-term continuous sobriety, they told me, you know, wow, I, I had no idea how much goes into this. Like mm-hmm. I had no idea how much still goes into this, you know, a decade yeah. later. And I thought that was really interesting because here they had been congratulating me for years and years and years on my sobriety, my recovery. And in my head, they understood what that meant. Mm. I don't know why. I don't know why I thought that, but I just, right. I did. Like well, that was the assumption. So when they revealed, you know, kind of unknowingly, like I don't think they were had an epiphany about it, but when they were like, wow, I had no idea. Mm-hmm. It was interesting because I was like, well, what were you congratulating me for? Mm. Like what did you think I was doing? And um, and again, not in an, not in a, an a, um, angry or judgmental way, just like I, I like I, I thought that's what they meant. Mm. And what, you know, the reason why we have a podcast talking about this topic, right? Like it would be a really short podcast if there was, you know, one one and done, right? Like that, yeah. that would be a relatively short topic. Like go to detox. That's it. See ya, yeah. right? Like that. <laughs> we have a podcast and it's called, uh, if you're struggling with drugs, go to detox, you'll be fixed. And you're completely fixed. Yeah. And, and then they went to detox and they that. were fixed. Yeah. So... You know, so much goes into it. And I think with the family portion, you know, I don't know that's, you know, it pulls on my heartstrings to hear Melissa think about like, what did so-and-so do differently that I didn't do in the comparison, right? Like it pulls, that's hard. Mm -hmm. And I do think it's a good topic because what I can tell you is that my family, I'm very lucky and my family with all the treatment centers that we went through and the age at which I went through everything I went through meant that everyone was very involved. I was not an adult. Mm-hmm. So my family, I, I literally could not leave treatment, you know, on my own volition. Mm-hmm. And I remember the day I turned 18 in, tre- in treatment with Serena and all my friends. And I was like, it was the best day. I, I like, I, I was like, I can leave. I'm not going to leave, but I can. You yeah, know? Just saying, knowing yeah, you yeah. have the option. Yeah. Meanwhile, I had some other stuff that was keeping me there too. So I don't know that I could have left. But I, my family is very in tune with signs of me not doing well. Mm. And they do not hesitate to bring it up. Um, they, you know, they'll discuss it with me. And they've educated themselves on um, a lot of these things. Now, I, you know... That doesn't necessarily like I'd love for my parents to do more counseling and more work on themselves. Just I think they would be better off. I think everyone would. 
But again, they, they are very cognizant of the fact that my recovery is a daily reprieve. Mm. And I think they understood that because they saw me relapse so many times. Yeah. So many times. They saw me relapse in restricted situations, like mm. inpatient restricted situations mm. <laughs> where I would yeah. find a way to relapse and they were like, what? You didn't walk out of rehab, you like, know, shiny face. Oh, God, no. The, oh, no. oh, yes, everything's no. great. I relapsed. Okay. I relapsed a lot. And so mm-hmm. they saw that. And yeah. so I think what they – and they saw me hold six months of sobriety and then relapse. And then, mm-hmm. you know, so I think their experience was traumatic enough that they became aware of what goes into it. Mm-hmm. And I am female and – spend a lot of time talking, um, (laughs) as is my personality. And so I talked about my recovery a lot too. I was like, I blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm (laughs) like, I would, you know, when you first get sober and you're really excited about it, particularly (laughs) a young person, you're like, hi, I'm Ashley. I'm sober. (laughs) You know, you know, you just like, you don't, there's nothing else to you because you've just like been born again into a a sober human. You're like, I don't know what I like. I've never done anything not drunk. Right. You know? (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> so you're, just, you're starting you're all like, over. This I don't know. I don't have any hobbies. I just go to meetings and like really try not to drink and call people. And I didn't go to school, so I'm trying to go to school. You know, you just <laughs> like you literally yeah. have nothing. There's no piece of you developed yet. You're redoing it all. So, so I spent a lot of time talking to them. I spent a lot of time with them, and I think by virtue of my relationship that I we had worked on in family therapy. And going through this process together, uh, being a family that talks a lot about everything, spending a lot of time, like I I had a very rocky relationship with my mother and I went to the Meadows to deal with relationship issues. Um, That was another thing. I did work on other things, Mm -hmm. right? So like I was very aware that there were a lot of things underlying my addiction Mm -hmm. and so my addictions. And so um, I went to the Meadows to work on relationships uh, because I was unable to manage. I was unable to manage the ups and downs of relationships without using alcohol. I just could. And my relationships were so incredibly toxic because of my picker and the whole thing that I literally could not stay sober through these emotions. Mm. So when I went to deal with that, I was taught to treat people the way, teach people how to treat you. So my mother who comes from, uh, my dad is a um, Jewish New Yorker and my mom is a Rhode Island wasp. These are their stereotypes. (laughs) And uh, and so if you're familiar with those cultures, they are very different. Mm -hmm. And my mom's culture did not, I didn't know, I didn't understand it. First Mm -hmm. of all, I didn't grow up in it. Um, And we moved away from the East Coast when I was, six. And so I just really didn't get it. And so my dad was very demonstrative and mm-hmm. and affectionate and all these things. And so I, that was a language I understood mm-hmm. because I'm that way. Right. And my mom wasn't. And I didn't know what that meant. And so long story short, I had to do a lot of repairing. And part of that for me was me taking this. I wanted a better relationship. So I spent time with my mom. I hugged her you know, when I saw her and I taught her how I wanted to be treated affectionately and called and all these different things. So like I had to be, I think 
I had to be the first person to take those actions to create those new relationships because I wanted that and I was taught to show people how you want the relationship yeah. to look, you know. So a lot of that stuff that I did created strong, very strong connections, very strong bonds, very strong healing in my family. And so, yeah, they show up and they're like, you're you're a mess, Ashley. What's going on? Or, you know, when I was pregnant and not doing well and off mm-hmm. my medication and, you know, just yeah. trying to survive. Like my mom moved in because I was not okay, you yeah. know, and she saw that. So I think there's a – but that – not every family, like in this situation with Melissa, you know, how is a 35-year-old man? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I got sober at 19. Yeah. So a I think different, th- different yeah, time frames. I, I think there's, there's, there's nuance there. But I do think that the family makes a big – difference by learning how to talk about the disease, by understanding that a great comparison of the disease is diabetes. And and Melissa mentioned this as well. Diabetes and addiction are wonderful metaphors for one another. Mm -hmm. Diabetes, you can arrest diabetes through, you know, diet, exercise, a daily practice Mm -hmm. of healthy living. Yep. What you do, if you have diabetes, you can eat well on Monday, but if you don't eat well on Friday, your body doesn't care that you ate well on Monday, Yeah, right? Exactly. It dysregulates. Addiction is the same way. You can have your disease arrested on Monday. You did all the things that you need to do for your recovery, whatever that looks like for you. And if you don't do them on Friday, you're chipping away at the health of of that disease. You're bringing it back. You're taking a step to bring it back. And I was taught that recovery is like an escalator. You're either going up or you're going down. You're not stagnant. Mm. It's going up or it's going down. So if you're stagnant, you're going down. Yeah. And I I have to say that that's been very true for me. That's been That's been my experience. So a family member understanding that and knowing, you know, if I called my father or my family and said, I don't have a sponsor – they would call me every single day until I got one. Yeah, they understand. But we have a relationship where that's okay. I know people who, if their family did that, they'd never speak to them. They would just literally cut them off. Right. So I think there's a lot of nuance there. And I think that what the families can do is try to understand what's going on, try to understand the disease, read about it, learn about it, talk to people, go to Al-Anon meetings, seek therapy, do all the things that you would want your child to do mm, or your good. loved one to do. Whatever it is that you want them to do, you do it. Yeah. You show them what it's like. You show them, hey, I'm willing to go to any length for your disease and I'm going to show you that. And I think that that's something that I remember uh, Melissa writing to us and saying to parents, get yourselves educated, you know, and it doesn't have to be, I think she said that in her episode, it doesn't have to just mean therapy. Therapy is phenomenal. I always recommend therapy. You always recommend therapy, mm-hmm. but you know, so, I mean, sometimes another option might be better for somebody. We're not here to tell you what that option is. So, but try all of it, but try all of try it. All exactly. Of it. You know, if you, you know, I see a lot of families, it's like, well, I'm not the one with the problem. That's, I hear that all the time. I yeah. talk to parents. I'm not the one with the problem. No, you're the one with a dying family member, mm-hmm. and you need to seek expert advice. And if therapy is no big deal and that's what you're telling your loved one, then why aren't you willing to do it? 
That's a really good point. Like, why not? Yeah. You need your your loved one is is killing themselves slowly, and you're telling me you don't have a problem. Yeah. I think you do have a problem. Your problem is you have a loved one killing themselves slowly. Yeah. It's a very painful problem. Absolutely. It's a very big problem. So there's a lot of pushback. Like, this isn't my deal. This isn't my oh, they're fixed. They're whatever. Let's mm-hmm. like mind like okay. Now we can move on. Right. You don't move on. You are not the same person if you're truly a drug addict and an alcoholic. Like, you know, yeah. again, some people, that's not the case. They have different experiences. I'm talking about the people who are truly drug addicts and alcoholics. If that is your loved one and there is nothing you can do for them, show them that you're willing to recover. And your recovery is going to be about figuring out how to live live in a world in which your loved one is trying to kill themselves. Yes, because that does require recovery. It mm-hmm. does require its own set of recovery. And it's not going away because it is a progressive disease. Look up the disease model. Read about it. Read as much as you can. Again, I just I if you're struggling with this stuff, if you have a family member struggling with this stuff, you know, feel free to reach out to me. Feel free to reach out to us um, to talk about this uh, podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. And reach out to people who've been there, reach out to professionals, experts in the area, go to meetings, just try everything you can because the right answers will intuitively appear for you, but you have to do the footwork Mm. and you have to be willing to do things that don't make sense. I had to be willing, you know, for me in my recovery, and this is, you know, and I say this to families all the time. They're asking their loved one to take a chance to believe that life can be different. Mm. They're saying, let's get you some help. And that help is telling them things can be different. Things can be better. Yeah. Right? And that person, your loved one, has to take a chance, has to take a leap of faith in a direction that makes no sense to them. Right. Not only does it make no sense to them, but it's painful. You're asking them to do that, but you're not willing to do it either. So you're showing up and saying, you know, well, I don't have a problem. This is, you know, this makes sense. And, you know, taking a leap of faith, trust these people. Well, if those same people are telling you what you should be doing, trust them. Yeah. Trust that we, as the experts, find experts you trust, right? That's number one. Find someone that has the information that you trust, right? Like obviously there's a lot of, you know, there there are people who are untrustworthy. I get that. Mm -hmm. Find somebody that you trust. And if you trust them enough to get advice about what to do for your child or your spouse, trust them when they tell you what to do for yourself. Yep. Because I cannot tell you how different my sobriety is as a result of my family having done their own work. Yeah. My sobriety is different because my family did their own work, because they learned about the disease, because they came to meetings with me, because they went to their own meetings. They did their own therapy. They showed up. Their recovery affected my recovery and continues to affect my recovery. So again, I just, if you don't know what to do, start seeking. Just put one foot in front of the other and start learning about what this is. Pretend it's a research project. You're going to write, you know, you're going to write a dissertation on it. What would you do? You'd go talk to the experts. You'd go to the meetings. You'd ask questions. You'd take notes. You'd read the books. 
do all those things. And the, the information and what's right and what makes sense for your particular situation will come to the surface. Mm-hmm. But you have to be willing to do the work and you have to be willing to take leaps of faith. Yeah, that's really great advice. Where would somebody start by looking up information preliminarily? Like if you could just kind of point them in the right direction. Yeah. So, um, okay, so a couple things. So lionrockrecovery.com has a family program that you can do online with a therapist weekly. So you can sign on and do video conference with a group of parents. And it's really about like coming up with a plan and what do you do and talking about the stuff I'm talking about. Like, okay, my kid's doing this. What does this mean? Mm -hmm. Or my spouse is doing this. What does this mean? And so it's just like that preliminary support of like, what do I do here? Um, I also, there are some books to read. Okay. There's a really great book called Healing the Addicted Brain, the revolutionary science-based alcoholism and addiction recovery book by Harold C. Urschel. I really like that one. It goes through a lot of the brain science, uh, particularly for people who are having a hard time like understanding why the person they love is doing things that are absolutely insane. Mm-hmm. I like that a lot. There's a great book called The Body Keeps the Score about shame, and it's very helpful with people who may have trauma um, and are using drugs and alcohol to respond to that. And I thought that was a I thought that's a really incredible a really incredible story. If your loved one is in a really unhealthy relationship, I suggest Codependent No More by Melody Beattie. I love that book. That's a good one. I'm reading um, that one right now. Yeah, it's a it's really that's it's written very, very well. She gives great examples. Another book to pick up is the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and read the first 164 pages. There's also stories in there that are very helpful. I think it's helpful to look into, you know, get a glimpse into what the brain of an alcoholic, what's going on for them. Another good one is Living Sober. Another good one is A New Pair of Glasses. Another good one, My Fair Junkie, A Memoir, Getting Dirty and Staying Clean. There's a really great book that I wrote called You Are Not Alone, How to Get Your Life Back When There is a Drug or Alcohol Problem by Ashley Loeb Blassingame, which is on Amazon, and we made it super affordable. I think it's $3. Is it $3? I think so. Okay. It's $2.99 or $3.99. Yeah, whether you... Whether you are struggling with drug or alcohol problem or you have a loved one struggling, you're not alone. We wrote this book. We've spent years working with people just like you. So this goes through all the different options that are out there, the different types of treatment, the different types of detox. Again, super affordable on Amazon. And yeah, it's You Are Not Alone, How to Get Your Life Back When There is a Drug or Alcohol Problem by Ashley Loeb Game on Amazon. That's you. That's me. So uh, that is my advice. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, so that those are some the, that that's a lot to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a really great place to start. Um, we'll have links to all those in the yes. show notes. So yes. click if you uh, if if you need help, kind of looking for those or where to buy them yes. or where yes. to start. Check out the show notes. Check out the show notes. And if you're not familiar with how to do that, then click on if you're on your smartphone, click on the episode and swipe up. And the show notes will appear out of nowhere. Um, and there's also links to show notes on our website, lionrockrecovery.com slash podcast. And you'll see links to show notes there for every episode. 
Awesome. I hope this was super helpful. And if not, please feel free to contact me or us and let us know um, what information you need and, and how we can be helpful. Absolutely. Have a wonderful rest of your week, everyone. Take care. The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast, would like to thank our sponsor, Lion Rock Recovery, for their support. Lion Rock Recovery provides online substance abuse counseling where you can get help from the privacy of your own home. For more information, visit www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash podcast. Subscribe and join our podcast community to hear amazing stories of courage and transformation. We are so grateful to our listeners and hope that you will engage with us. Please email us comments, questions, anything you want to share with us, how this podcast has affected you. Our email address is podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. We want to hear from you. 